This episode of the No Film School podcast is sponsored by Musicbed. Musicbed believes everyone should have access to great music in their projects, regardless of their budget or workflow. That's why they just announced their all-new membership program, the first music licensing subscription of its kind, releasing this summer. Membership is here to make their world-class roster of artists and composers available for all of your projects. Membership will give you unlimited access to a majority of Musicbed's artists, all at a flat monthly or yearly rate based on the types of films you make. And if you still want single-use licenses, they're not going anywhere. Membership is just a new option to make licensing work better for your workflow. Be one of the first to learn more at musicbed.com membership. And don't forget, you can get 20% off your next on-site license with coupon code NF20. Hi, this is Oakley Anderson-Moore, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. Sometimes the rhythm, the humor, the drama, even the entire plot of a film only starts to work in post-production. And while some people prefer to wax poetic about how a film was shot than say how it was edited, which may be in part because editing by definition is about being invisible, many filmmakers remember post-production as that murky, magical realm where their film came to life. At this past Sundance Film Festival, I sat down with a handful of editors, animators, and colorists who basically live in that realm. In part one of this conversation, you'll hear mostly from editors on their process of turning a jumble of pictures and sounds into an award-winning film. This is Oakley from No Film School, and I'm really excited about the conversation we're about to have. I'm at the Sundance Film Festival sitting down with a bunch of people, editors, colorists, and animators, and we're about to talk about post-production. Because if you think that you could just shoot a bunch of footage and turn it into a film that gets into Sundance, you are way off. So thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, I'd love to just go around uh, the room and have you introduce yourself. Tell us what you do, what film you're with, and, and whether you're an editor or a colorist or an animator, let us know what appealed to you. How did you get attracted to this field to begin with? Cool. Yeah. Hey, great to be here. This is Ninev Laura Minier. I'm with 306 Hollywood. Um, I'm the editor, one of the editors on the film. The director's also edited, uh, as well as the composer did some editing. So it was a real team collaborative effort. But I was on the project about two years off and on. And uh, how did I come to come to the project? Yeah, or what, you know, how did you end up becoming an editor? What is it about that that you, maybe not necessarily how you got there, but what appeals to you about? Ah, yeah, yeah. Thought I'd lead with like the hardest question. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) And I'm the first one off the bat. Okay. So uh, editing, the minute I saw an edit room, I wanted to edit. It was like love at first sight. And I'd started out in production and there was just, there was something about the, the, you know, an an avid suite. It was like uh, something like the, the, the space, not the space shuttle, what's the Houston like headquarters where the, the lights uh, <laughs> and all the mixing tables. I mean, that was when like the edit suites were huge and, and bright lights and everything. You wanted to push all the launch buttons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't know what any of the buttons did. And so, but the, the thing that really appealed to me was just the, the something about science and art that blends in editing. And so, of course, like editing is making worlds and making realities. And that's really appealing to me, but it allows like so many aspects of my interests and my, you know, how I see the world to, to exist simultaneously. It's not just art. It's not just 
you know, dependent on whatever the topic is. You're kind of employing everything to make a world. So that's really what appealed to me. Awesome. Hello, I'm Patrick Lawrence, and I'm the editor of the feature film Clara's Ghost, as well as the short film Men Don't Whisper. Uh, I would say that I became an editor because I wanted to be a director, like most people in college <laughs> at my time. And I was pretty intimidated by the amount of people that I met that were wanting to do simpler things. And so I ended up taking a few video production courses real early on in college when DV tape was still a thing and we were ingesting and cutting digitally and it hadn't become so mainstream and that became appealing to me. And over the years, I just kept tinkering with it in video podcasts and things like that. And so when I finally finished college a few years later, I decided to just jump full into film production. And... I think what appealed to me most about it was it was an extension of directing for me because whereas I necessarily as a director, like I have stories that I like to tell and um, a vision of some kind. I don't necessarily think it's the most unique vision, the most creative vision, but working with writers and directors who do have those visions and being able to kind of feed off of them and see how they see the world and then help shape their films where they can't see how to put it together. That was appealing to me. It was an extension of directing. Um, the way I interpret, uh, editing as a whole is basically like big puzzle pieces and I've never been a puzzle person at all. I've never been a person to say, Hey, there's a thousand piece puzzle over there. Let's go put it together. But the way I interpret the, my workflow is basically taking these huge unnatural puzzle pieces that aren't meant to go together and somehow making something out of nothing that uh, tells a story. And uh, I, you know, I've been lucky enough to have been here twice now. I've had foreign films in the festival. And uh, I'm glad that those pieces fit together for the people that saw them. So yeah, next up, Sam Daly. I, got, I've, I am definitely curious about how a colorist becomes a colorist. So make sure to tell me. Okay. Um, my name is Sam Daly. I am a colorist. I graded four films that are at the festival this year. I actually have to write them down, make sure I get everybody. Um, Two that are in competition, Tyrell and Sorry to Bother You, and one uh, movie that uh, premiered last night at the Midnight uh, Shows, Piercing. And there's a premiere call of a movie called Beirut that I also graded, uh, which will be released through Bleecker Street on April 13th. So they're one of the few that already has uh, a release date here at Sundance. Cool. I, I got into color, I think, similar to to how Patrick got into editing, whereas I came out of film school thinking above the line, above the line, and I couldn't find something that stuck. Uh, I tried, you know, music video directing, and I tried all these things, and I needed a job. And I had some experience uh, running the, the camera department at my university, and so I kind of knew cameras and, and photography and cinematography. Uh, and I, I got a job at a lab, I mean, doing all things sound transfer, so like nothing, but I needed a job. And uh, I worked production for a little while right out of school, and it, uh, I, it just wasn't for me. I was nowhere near set, you know, I was doing lock-offs, I was, just didn't feel like I was part of, part of filmmaking, I was like just collecting a day rate. And so I did sound transfers, and then uh, I moved to New York, and I needed another job, and I, I had experience at a lab, so I got a job at Duart, um, which was, at that time in the 90s, was 
a seminal uh, house for uh, independent film, especially the, uh, there were, I think, six Sundance winners that came out of Sundance. I'm just kidding, came out of Duart that year, I mean, uh, the years that I was there. Uh, and I did audio. I, I synchronized audio on the graveyard shift. Nice. And while st- still trying, wants, still right? trying to be, uh, you know, a director and writing and 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 then I found myself hanging out with all the other color with the colorists, and and they uh, they a lot of colorists there at the time had broadcasting backgrounds, and they don't know how to read a camera report. Now my lab experience and also my you know from working uh, in the camera department at my university. Uh, I could. I, I knew what a chocolate filter should look like, and they should not time it out. And so I would be giving. I'd be sitting down, just shooting. Uh, can I curse? Yes. Shooting curse. the shit with uh, <gasps> these with these colorists, uh, and on the daily shift overnight, and saying, "Oh no, no, that's a coral filter. You need. You can't balance that out." You know, and be telling, "Oh, oh, the reason why it's so stroby is because they have a one eight. You know, they, they close down to a ninety degree shutter." Like I like I spent all my time there annoying these colorists and then finally I said uh, you know can I train to be a colorist and it just meant longer time on the graveyard shift and uh, I did commercial dailies for years and then you know changed companies and did you know commercial work and then moved companies again and got into features and that's where I really felt like I connected with the people that were creating the content and I spoke the same language as a lot of uh, feature uh, narrative uh, filmmakers and and I've been able to go back and forth between feature film and television and some short form, I occasionally do promos and commercials and music videos. Uh, but I, I really connect with, with filmmakers and I, I, and I feel like a filmmaker, um, even though I'm not above the line. I, I feel when, I, when I'm there in my, in, in, in my theater, my theater uh, that I am that a contributor and they're, they're trusting me and I'm, um, like, like Patrick said, with the puzzles. I mean, I'm I'm putting together, you know, the colors for them and making it, and, and I'm also feel like I'm I'm the first audience member, so they've been stuck in an edit room for so long, and maybe the DP hasn't seen a cut in six months, and so I'm sort of in the middle. I'm like, no, this is let's we should go here, and uh, this is how I'm reacting to it, and so I'm I'm the diplomat uh, in in many cases. So uh, that was a long route, but I've been doing this a long time. So oh, that's cool. Interesting path. Nat, you're also a colorist. Is uh, how, you know, is your experience similar? Elaborate. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, just to start with my introduction, um, my name is Nat Jenks, and uh, like Sam, I'm gonna use my little cheat sheet. But uh, <laughs> um, worked on five films this year: um, uh, Juliet Naked, um, which is a Jesse Peretz. Um, film and uh madeline's madeline it's uh josephine decker's new film here at the festival uh nancy which premiered yesterday um cam uh miseducation of cameron post and a kid like jake um and uh yeah in terms of how i got into color um similar in some ways but very different in others like similar in that uh yeah when i um, started I uh, started working in the vault at a commercial facility um, you know scanning barcodes and checking things into a filemaker database and um, was totally unsuited to it and uh, um, through like a very long and convoluted path that's probably too long to get into um, sort of 
meandered my way from that through editorial um, and visual effects and title design. Um, and maybe uh, 10 years later, found myself um, working for Steven Soderbergh, um, who I worked with for six years. When I was working for him, we, um, for lots of complicated reasons, well, we were we were working on um, a film called Che, which is one of the first films shot on Red. And um, yeah, for complicated reasons, we ended up doing everything in-house and buying all of our own uh, DI equipment and kind of building our own DI facility. Um, so I found myself in a position where for the first time I had all these tools at my disposal, um, which um, for the way that I learn and like to, um, yeah, the, my learning style is much more, um, if I have something available to me and I can play with it, um, I love to like play around and tinker with things. Um, and so that was, that was kind of my, um, entree into doing color work. And I kind of, I, I knew that, you know, I have a photography background and doing photography. Um, I always found like the dark room to be the place that I, uh, you know, really enjoyed being and like found that like, you know, like end up taking pictures of like fairly mundane landscapes and found objects and then spending like ages in the dark room, like playing around and like oh. seeing what I could do with it. Um, so yeah, that piece of the process is um, something that's always interested me a lot. My name is Keiko Deguchi. I'm here with We The Animal, I'm the editor. Um, so, the way I started, I was at NYU. Uh, I didn't go to a film school. I went to cinema studies. I wasn't thinking going to film production. I was thinking to going back to Japan and thinking, oh, maybe distribution or something. That would be kind of cool. You know, come to film festival and pick up films. And that was back in 80s when American independent film was just coming up, like, hundreds. So I thought it was a really exciting time doing that kind of stuff. And then the distribution company uh, made a first film in Japan. And they said, what, well, do you want to come? So I said, yeah, sure. And they didn't have any money, but I went anyway. <laughs> and I was the apprentice editor. And I just fell in love. And um, it's back when uh, we were still editing in film. So oh, we had cool. all these boxes, labels, and what what we call cinetabs. I don't know. I, I'm sure none of you know, but you know, <laughs> we, we kind of hung these films on a thing called cinetabs, and we make those things and nice and neat. Um, so it had this very tangible craft-like feel to it, which I really loved. Unlike Patrick, I love puzzles. <laughs> and I'm excited about thousand-piece puzzles. And I do think editing is much more like puzzles. And that's, that's really like when I see this footage and try to figure out how to put them together, that's what really excites me. Very cool. And we also have some other people from We the Animals. I should say to the, to the people listening, Keiko showed up and 
she rolls pretty deep because I swear like 15 people <laughs> from the post-production on that film and some of which are listening and some of which are here. So you guys, please introduce yourselves and, and give us a say. Uh, my name is Seth Reichert and I'm a colorist to RCO. Uh, we're a small facility. Um, I guess I got into color in a super roundabout way. Uh, first, As if these school. guys weren't roundabout. <laughs> I think even more roundabout actually. Okay. I think okay. I did pretty much every other job. Um, so I started out going to school for creative writing and decided that wasn't for me. Um, so then I started doing web design um, and worked for a company in the city that did web design and motion graphics when I was 18. Um, and that was a funny experience when you're the only person in the office that can't drink yet. Uh, and then I got into motion graphics there from web design. And then I got hired by a company called Digital Kitchen in Chicago. Uh, after that and moved out there. We did a lot of show titles um, and I started shooting a lot as well. Moved back to New York and freelance doing motion graphics there um, and then started doing compositing and shooting as well. So that's similar, I guess, in your case. Um, and then when I was doing compositing, I really loved the color side of it and you know, tweaking shots in terms of the color. Um, so then as, as I was doing that and I was shooting more, um, I started shooting for, um, a company called Buck that does motion graphics and animation, um, in New York. And I built out a suite there and I worked at night on friends, music videos and films and stuff like that. And I really cherished the relationship with directors and how I can help chaperone them to achieve the vision they want. Um, as opposed to having to dictate what other people should do. Like I could dictate that on technical terms, but in terms of creative, I wanted to help them find their way as opposed to other career paths I could have chosen where if I was doing art direction, I would tell someone else what to do. Um, and I really liked helping the director find their path. Um, and I'm a good problem solver as all of you guys are. <laughs> so I liked picking things apart and putting them together and color is a fantastic way to do that. Um, and then I started, I would work at night my wife would be kind enough to bring me a change of clothes in the morning. So no one at work would realize <laughs> what I had just been doing. Um, and I'd have so when you were bringing your night. friends in at night, that was off the clock. Kind yeah. Of like sneaking them in to use it. Exactly. Okay, nice. No, but my boss was really kind and was totally cool with that. Uh, very supportive. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And, um, but I didn't want them to realize how sleep deprived I was <laughs> for the other job that I was supposed to be doing. Um, so I would go meet my wife at the train station and pick up a bag of clothes, go back to the office and change. Then people would come in and be like, yeah, I just got in a little while ago and I'd be having coffee. <laughs> uh, and then I was able to build up enough clients to start my own company. Um, yeah. Then I've been working on films. This is the fifth Sundance that I've been to with films. Uh, I worked on We the Animals and I worked on an episodic series called The Trade for Showtime. Um, yeah. That's awesome. my path. I like that you mentioned the problem solvers because I really think that film people in general, whether on set or in post, are some of the best problem solvers I've ever met in my entire life, especially the crew people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Doesn't it also seem like we could be like have a, a second job as like FBI investigator? <laughs> like, say, I always kind of thought, yeah. like, I think I could do that. Yeah, actually, maybe you guys should be applying these skills to something. <laughs> I think a lot of that is hubris, too. I think a lot of all of us like think we can do anything. And then we get ourselves into these these boxes that we have to find our way out of. And that's how we learn a lot, you know. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. 
So Mark, the last one, if you introduce yourself, you're the one animator we have here. And yeah. I'm so I'm curious to hear from you to tell us a little bit. Yeah, so my name is Mark Samsonovich. Um, I designed the animation and the illustration for We the Animals. Um, I don't really have like a long history of how I got into animation. This is the first film I've ever worked on. And, uh, wow. and the first time I've ever done animation. I've never done it prior to working on this film. Um, I'm a painter based in New York. Uh, I got put in touch with Jeremiah because he was looking for an illustrator, someone to design Jonah's uh, like imaginary illustrated world. And uh, I was like sort of hesitant at first because I don't normally take on like design jobs. I really like just doing what I want to do and working in my studio. But I took a phone call with Christina, one of the producers, and uh, and then I met with Jeremiah in a in a coffee shop. He was with his kid and he had his, he had his laptop and he like showed me one scene of the film uh, on his laptop on mute while his kid was like crying and like. And like that one scene was like so powerful, um, even you know despite the circumstances, and I just felt like there was something special there. So I ended up taking on the project, and it was like pretty pretty smooth. Um, I think the first time I came back to Jeremiah with drawings, like samples of like what his world could look like, he was like that's spot on. And uh, and then yeah, and then I spent a few weeks just just designing this journal. It was a prop. Um, you know, I, I designed. A couple of journals to, in total, but but we filled every page, and then and then at some point uh, in the process, I think during shooting the winter session, um, we both realized that this should become animated. Uh, I think I've I've always had like a prior interest in animation. I kind of knew that I'd I'd get into it at some point in time. I didn't know how, um, and Jeremiah's definitely fiddled with it before in his work. Um, so so yeah, it came out came about pretty naturally, I think. Um, and then what was supposed to be a three-week project turned into a year-long animation job. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that's how it all started for me. Very cool. And, you know, to explain to listeners, We the Animals is about uh, three young kids, and they're kind of growing up under difficult circumstances. And the youngest in the film is, sort of escapes into this world he creates, and part of that is shown you know he hit what he's creating then becomes animated yeah. worlds and stuff so i'd love to ask you and keiko what the process was like in terms of editing did you start editing once all of this animation come in and i know there's a lot of other things in the film that are very unusual and are otherworldly um talk to us about how the editing process was in regards to incorporating those elements. Right, so that was one of the hardest <laughs> thing about the editing, the reason it took so long to edit, because Mark didn't come on until January, I guess? Yeah, and we started shooting in July, the year before. So for all the time, we didn't know what his drawing was gonna look like, what it was gonna be. <laughs> so we were kind of working in this Im imaginary space also, we didn't have shot of him drawing even. So I, I had complete this blank spot. Um, and that's his word, which is essential to the film. <laughs> so yeah. we were like trying to find the film without the most important scene in, in the film, basically. <laughs> so that was the hardest part until we got Mark to start drawing. And then even after he started drawing, we didn't start animating until May 
or something. A month ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and then like when Jeremiah said animation, I was like, animation, I don't really see it because the film is very uh, natural, documentary-like, and animation just didn't sound right. And I was kind of doubtful it's going to work. But when we first saw what Mark did, it's like, oh, okay, I get it. You know, it's very natural, um, organic kind of stuff that Mark did, so. I mean, I think it was like, it was a pretty strong collaboration between you, me, and Jeremiah for like six months, you know? I came in and I saw um, the rough cut, probably the roughest cut, <laughs> and, uh, and like we were kind of deciding, Jeremiah was deciding, you and Jeremiah were deciding where to, you know, put animation, where it should go. And really also like, like what purpose does it serve? You know, um, there was some, some things that like, yeah, some moments where like there's, I guess, Jonah is seeing a different part of reality than, than what, you know, his, than what the audience is seeing in, in the film. Um, and yeah, I think like I think what ended up ha happening was was I made some some animatics, some mockups for the animation. We put them in, and then the edit shifted around, and then we threw those mockups out and and redid them, put them into different places, and yeah, yeah, it was it was like it was like that, I guess. I just want to add one thing. Yeah. So animation was extremely helpful once we got it because it was the thing that we, we could say, oh, we can do animation to solve this problem right. in a way, <laughs> right. you know. Uh, once you finish shooting, obviously you don't have that much choices to do that, but with animation, we could add another storyline almost. So, yeah, it was amazing to have that. Yeah, yeah and Mark, you know, you, this is your first time doing animation, so I'm just curious, like, what did you use that you learned so quickly how to do it? You know what I mean? Like, uh, I think, like, what we all share here is like this, this, uh, problem, problem solving. solving. Yeah. Yeah, no, for real. And like, I love learning craft. Like I, I build furniture, I make clothes. Uh, it's just something that I, I love getting into something that's, that's in some way complex. That's not my, my shirt, but I can't knit, but, but you know, um, yeah, no, I love, I love learning new crafts and, Animation just felt approachable to me, especially the the style of animation for this film. Um, you know, it's all done with like crayons and and paper. You know, it it is done as if a child did it. Um, so so in that respect, it's not like uh, I'm entering a Disney production studio and like starting day one. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I there there's things with like motion. There's at first some of the motions that we were doing were simple. You know, there was only one perspective involved. Um, and then over time, you know, as we as we got more involved in, in like, you know, like the narrative qualities of the animation, I started exploring like different kinds of techniques and, and different kinds of perspectives um, in the animation process. So, yeah, I think, I th you know, I think it's a pretty approachable line of work. Um, as long as you can, you know, you have a certain level of competence and, and problem-solving abilities. Cool. So it's so interesting hearing about this process because, 
especially knowing that your director had worked in documentary in the past. I think this is his first narrative. And hearing how like the story was still coming together in fundamental ways at the end kind of to me sounds like something that's common a lot in documentary. So I feel like this could be a good thing to, to, to bring up with Nev about 306 Hollywood, which is a documentary, but I should say it's a, a, not like any documentary that I've ever seen. It's a magical realist documentary. It follows two siblings who go into the house of their dead grandmother and reanimate her objects into this like big meditation on life and death. And there's like dance sequences and all this interesting, bizarre stuff. Can you talk to us about, you know, being the editor on a project like that, which is sort of like has all the elements of a traditional narrative, but has potentially this, this documentary aspect where you're still finding the story, or if you don't even think that's true, you could say that, and that's the same in narrative, so. <laughs> yeah, we, okay, Alan and Jonathan Bogarin, the directors, um, they had a sense of what it could be. They always knew, they, they, they had a clear sense of what magical realism meant to them. When I started on the project, I didn't really know what that meant. So then it was a matter of like creating a language to understand and we would have these whole debates about what is magical that's not magical that's you know that's more <laughs> fantasy or that's you know fairy tale or that's so we started to have to really dissect like literal language to understand how our visuals connecting to how we understand things and how do we create then those visuals um, and create a storyline so they had 10 years worth of interviews with the grandmother and um, maybe about like eight hours of material and then they would start to shoot the objects in the house. Um, with a, they have a very strong visual arts background in photography and painting and, and a kind of an aesthetic that's just really rigorous, like the way they frame everything, the, their color choices um, and how they just set up shooting like a radio that they would find in the house. They found like 20 radios and they would put them on different color um, tablecloths and, and like it was just so specific. But then we just had all these objects and we didn't really know like, okay, what is the basic story? And like, it's so interesting to hear the process of We the Animals because it's like, how do you understand what an emotional arc can be if you're missing these elements? And how do you trust that you can hit these emotional tones until you have all of your elements? So the edit room really was this kind of a laboratory of, of experimenting. And I'd never worked on any process like this before it was <laughs> scary and crazy and we just we didn't know if it would work um, and we we dove in and then just started creating sketch after sketch of ideas of for scenes which then we started to kind of understand where they could come and in the arc and we understood that it was then more about the directors excavating literally excavating um, but the the experimental lab part was really just that we'd have an idea for a scene and then just really rough visuals and then they'd have to go shoot stuff based on what the process revealed in the sketch and then we'd bring those images back and luckily it was only in Jersey it was like a 30 minute drive they could go and spend like a half a day and grab some stuff and and so the house was a lab and the edit room was a lab and then we just keep going back and forth and like suddenly these scenes would take on different shapes that we couldn't predict ahead of time and sometimes they would just pop and sometimes they would be flat and like, okay, how do we crack that? I and mean, it really depend on like a single image sometime or creating, you know, they did all these um, upside down lens images just for the hell of it at one point. <laughs> and they were beautiful and weird. And we're like, okay, we got to use them somewhere. And somehow with the storytelling, like um, 
tropes that we use. We knew like fairy tale was a really important device um, that would inspire how we tell the story. So we came up with this concept of a portal that made a lot of sense for their characters to enter a portal. And it was like, oh, we have these upside down lenses. Great. And then, you know, then they would shoot more that were more abstract. And so some of it came from the material that was there that would just be this associative, random, like chance discovery. And then we would create a whole scene around that. And others came, were much more scripted. And then they'd go shoot like these lip syncs based on these tapes that they found of their family from the 70s fighting. So that was really, they knew they wanted to create these lip syncs with these actors in the same clothes, in the house, with the same plates. But we didn't know what we were going to do with them for uh, like a year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for the other editors, how much does that, have you worked on projects where something like this is similar, where you're essentially coming up or writing the story as the editor? You know, does this, are there certain projects where you feel like that as well? Is this something that's more common in documentary versus narrative? Like, what are your experiences in terms of, I'm writing the story in the edit room as we speak? Uh, I went through a bit of that this past year working on another feature called Silicon Beach, which is uh, world premiering at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. And that was one that we really shaped the film in the edit. I, I thought it was a wonderful script. And my first pass of the film I thought was really great as well. And, it, and we just found that some things were working better uh, shifted around. And that included, you know, it, your order of days in your story, flipping those around and hoping nobody notices the costume <laughs> changes and stuff like that. Uh, but it, it told a stronger story ultimately in the end. Um, and that was a good example of that. With, for me, on Clara's Ghost, I feel bad because the biggest animation thing we had to do was a nail break. <laughs> and the only reason we had to do that was because it, it just didn't look real enough when we shot it. And so there was a lot of arguments on set about whether or not we should reshoot it. And just because we were so tight on time, it didn't happen. And I had to assure the producers in the AD, oh, we can we can animate this. We can we can uh, cover it up with color. I had no idea how, but I assured them that we would. <laughs> and we found this really uh, amazing uh, visual effects artist, Matt Lathrum, and I described to him exactly what it needed to be because it just looks like a fake fingernail that snaps in half. And uh, what he sent back was incredible. And and even watching it on the big screen here at Sundance, I was like, I can't believe that. That's a fake fingernail. Uh, but that was that was the extent of our animation pro, pro, uh, problems, I guess. Yeah, interesting. Kiko, did you want to add in, anything oh, to that? Yeah, sure. Well, with documentary, obviously, it's 100%. Uh, everything happens in the editing room, uh, writing and structuring and all that. Uh, with the animals, actually, was somewhat similar, it was very fluid script, the way I describe. Um, so the scenes, uh, we took shots from everywhere, we took scenes from everywhere. And Jeremiah, because he also has a documentary background, he's so open to doing all those things. Uh, and with help of animation, <laughs> we could do even more. So there was tons of those things in this film. Very cool. So Patrick, I was going to ask you a little bit then about Clara's Ghost, which for people listening is uh, sort of a dramedy, drama comedy, kind of weird. And there's a ghost and it's this interesting sort of like a family's getting drunk together in the living room and it's starring and directed by and written by 
Bridie Elliott. Bridie Elliott mm-hmm. and her family, who you have probably seen on Saturday Night Live. Like, mm-hmm. They have this unusual dynamic. It's really cool. So what I'm curious about is how you create tone as an editor. You know, is this something, and you know, the others can speak to this as well, but uh, especially with Clara's Ghost, where is, there's like this distinct tones and sometimes multiple, is the tone coming from the footage or are you creating the tone? Like, how does it happen in the edit room? Sure. Uh, when I first read the script for Clara's Ghost, that was the thing that appealed me most about it. I mean, it, it was one of the best scripts that's ever come across my table. And I think that's because, you know, they say write what you know, and Bridie literally wrote everything that she knows about her family <laughs> and their house and their dog. And... <laughs> Uh, I knew the Elliot family. Uh, I've, I've known Bridie for about three years now. I edited her first short film that was in Sundance and I got to meet Chris and Abby while they were here. So I was a little familiar with them, but we ended up doing a Kickstarter campaign last year and Bridie had the intuition of shooting the Kickstarter pitch video. Like this is Bridie Elliot filming her family with a handy cam and the whole time it's it's Chris and Paula Elliott sitting on a couch going, Bridie, why why are you making us do this? Like we we're not giving you any money, like blah, blah, blah. It felt real. And I think that's what helped us really sell the pitch of this movie. But through that, I got to learn a little bit more about their personalities. Because uh Chris, for instance, I mean, I've been watching since I was a kid. I watched him on Get a Life and Letterman and uh Groundhog Day, which is one of my favorite movies. And a lot of people know him from There's Something About Mary or Scary Movie Two, but like Abby, I was a little familiar with from Saturday Night Live, but like I got to know all their personalities, especially Paula, who's the star of our film, from this pitch video. And Paula's never acted before. She had some small stints uh, a while back. And this was essentially Bridie's love letter to her mother by giving her a movie she could finally star in. And because I could uh, really pinpoint their personalities in the script, their characters leapt off the page. So I read every uh, line of dialogue in their voices, uh, and that really sold me on, I I could imagine, even though I'm not the DP, I could imagine the angles that I would want to be on and, and how scenes would play out a certain way. But the tone of the film is what was really uh, a selling point for me because it's a juxtaposition of this comedy film and a horror film in the same way. And not in like how you would see like a scary movie, you know, a scary movie too. I should, you know, it's <laughs> kind of a hard, you know what I mean? Um, the meat of the film kind of like near the fourth reel is this upstairs downstairs effect where everything that's going on upstairs is terrifying. And it's, uh, Clara, she's already possessed by the ghost and she's seducing Haley Joel Osment's character and everything going on downstairs with the rest of the Reynolds family, which is Abby Bridie and Chris Elliott. They're drunk and having a seance and it's just constantly shifting tone back and forth. And what I love about the film is that it, it literally comes to a point where Clara is standing on the other side of the door getting ready to burn it down and kill her family and they are on the other side of the door going clara you know mom you're being a bitch maybe you smoke some wacky weed like and so the comedy is just like up to the point where there's a door separating the tension of the tone of the film and that was super appealing to me and and i I wanted to be a part of the film regardless but this was the thing was like i could really sink my teeth into shifting tones like that uh when we were shooting on set it was also a question of like, well, where are we at here? And like, what's the tone of this scene? Cause you're shooting it out of order. And I, 
I worked very closely with the DP, Marcus Menser, and we got together and we looked at our shot list every night and, you know, looked for things that might have been missed or how things would lend to the script or things that were mentioned in the script that might have gotten overlooked in the shot list that, that really helped the film later on. And also just like how to approach it in forms of tone. And I, I really worked with him to assure him that like the arc of the film and, and the, the tone changing was going to work. And uh, I, I believe it did. <laughs> I hope we pulled it off. But uh, yeah, it's definitely it's been hard for me when when talking about the film this weekend because people go, you know, is it a comedy? Is it a horror film? Is it a documentary? Because it's, you know, the Elliot's playing characterizations of themselves. And I say, you know, if anything, it's a mockumentary because they are just, um, you know, themselves stripped to a core and then, you know, caricatures. Yeah. I mean, do the other editors have anything to add about tone? I mean, you know, how you're creating that as an editor or adding to choices made in production and continuing that in the edit? Yeah, I mean, I think the material really tells you in documentary oftentimes what it wants to be, what it can be, and you can force it to a certain extent or push it in certain directions, but sometimes it's just a matter of observing really well what is it that's in front of you. So, like, you know, we were dealing with all these big themes that we were interested in, and, and Alan and Jonathan are really nerdy. They would they would describe themselves as <laughs> nerdy people. I'm kind of a nerd. Like, we love philosophy. We love talking about big themes and memory and time and you know it just started to get a bit too kind of heady but then we kept going back to grandma and in her material she is like armchair philosopher she's so she strips things down to such simple wisdoms and then you know I would say like the two-hour versions of her uncut interviews are like any grandma she's telling stories it can be a little bit boring half the time, most of the time, but then she's got these like pearls and then you just you know, dissect it down to these sentences where she's hilarious and she doesn't know she's hilarious. And so the tone then, I mean, I worked really hard to try to bring as much humor as possible out of her. And then that started to kind of like shift everything in that direction so that the moments of humor were really grounding everything. So it wasn't like we were adding comic relief. It was like this this kind of play and fun and humor was the driving force so that in moments that could breathe and something else could emerge that was like maybe more deeper interesting very interesting with documentary films often oftentimes i feel like styles are the hardest things to come by so that's like what you want to do with the material you know you can go so many different ways and that's the hardest thing I find so when the director has a vision already and not always happens so that's the challenge Um, with the animals I think from very early stage of the edit it I think the tone shifted slightly uh, in terms of there, there are many great funny scenes with the three kids um, but because we had to go kind of go from that to sort of very violent or some kind of disturbing feeling about the family's dysfunctions and children growing up in that situations and I think audience kind of felt going too up and down and we kind of had to kill some babies. <laughs> <laughs> 
You've been listening to the No Film School podcast. Don't forget to check out part two of this conversation. Subscribe to us, rate us on iTunes or whatever platform you use. Listen to Indie Film Weekly every Thursday. And as always, thank you for listening.